Hey, this is John Jameson. If this is the first time you've joined us on the podcast, thank you and welcome. We really appreciate it. Let us know your aha moments and while you're at it, we'd like you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Altcoin Sidekick podcast is available on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean and Stitcher. So please leave a review and don't be scared of making it five stars. We'll keep the great content coming to help you on your journey into the cryptocurrency markets. It's now possible to fly non-stop to Australia direct from the UK in just under 17 hours. And today, if you use a traditional bank, jumping on a plane with your cash in a grab bag is still the fastest way to send money internationally. And that just doesn't make sense. Of course, there's a legal limit to how much cash you can have on you. But in 2018, the archaic system used to transfer money is like using a carrier pigeon with a message taped to its leg when you could be using email. This is John Jameson for AltcoinSidekick.com and this week let's take a look at how traditional banks move funds across borders and the new disruptive banks and technologies that are shaking things up. So to begin with, let's take a look at SWIFT and SEPA. Now the banking industry by its own admission uses a model that's more 1998 than 2018. When you want to send money internationally, you'll more than likely be using the SWIFT payment system. And if you're in Euro, Europe and you want to send euros between different member state countries, then you'll most likely be using SEPA. Most viewers will have used the SWIFT system via their bank to transfer funds internationally. And the two most enduring memories of SWIFT for you are probably, one, it isn't SWIFT, and two, that it's uh, quite expensive, or actually very expensive. So what is SWIFT? Well, SWIFT stands for the Society for the Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, and it's just a messaging system. So you might be thinking that the SWIFT name is kind of ironic considering how slow it is, but you've got to think about what was used before SWIFT, and before SWIFT, the only available method to transfer funds internationally was Telex. Now, Telex was slow and had little or no security, and messages sent over Telex were sent in plain text, now to exacerbate this, Telex didn't use any formal identifying systems either. And to use it, you literally had to type in the instructions using sentences. So the receiving bank would receive the message and then have to interpret that message. And this caused a high level of errors because of language interpretation. In 1974, seven international banks formed a cooperative society and agreed to operate a global network to transfer bank instructions securely. And by 1977, the SWIFT cooperative had increased from the initial seven banks to over 230. Now the success of SWIFT is based on its scalability. And today the SWIFT messaging system provides transaction information between uh, banks, brokerage houses, clearing houses, uh, exchanges, foreign exchange money brokers, and with over 10,000 members sending 24 million messages a day. Now, a lot of people still imagine their money being physically transferred overseas and use this as the justification for the time taken uh, uh, for handling your money transfer. But no money is ever sent through the SWIFT system. SWIFT does one thing, it sends secure messages. And that's all it does. It doesn't send funds through the system ever. So let's take a look at SWIFT and how it works. You're probably familiar with the unique identifier codes that SWIFT uses, and they are either um, eight or 11 characters. And this code is called by various names, but they all mean the same thing. And sometimes it's known as a BIC code, sometimes it's known as a SWIFT code or even a SWIFT ID. Now, bank transfers 
work um, basically like this. Uh, we're going to go through the simplest scenario and then make it more complex. So imagine if you walk into a branch of your bank in your home country and you want to send money to a friend who also banks with the same bank as you also inside your home country, then all you need is the branch code and the account number. So that's the simplest way, no problem. Now, if your friend banks with the same bank as you, even if it's a different branch, then the money doesn't actually leave your bank. It's transferred with an internal debit to your account and a credit to your friend's account. And this kind of transfer is called an intrabank transfer. But what if your friend banks with a different bank, but also in the same country as you? How does that work? Well, sending money between banks in the same country is called an interbank transfer. So if uh, your bank and your friend's bank both have a reciprocating commercial account agreement with each other, then the transfer basically works like this. Your bank will debit your account and will credit your friend's bank's, your friend's bank's commercial account. And then your friend's bank's commercial account will credit your friend's account. But if your bank doesn't have a commercial banking relationship with your friend's bank, then this is when you might have heard the term an intermediary bank, and that's when an intermediary bank is used. Now, all countries have an intermediary bank uh, that all banks within that country must have an account with. And uh, that bank is also sometimes known as a central bank, and it's also known as a lender of last resort. And so that's how money is transferred domestically between banks if it's at the same bank or if it's in a different bank. But what happens when the bank transfer has to move across borders? Well, that's when SWIFT comes in. That's when you use SWIFT. So an international money transfer is basically the same as an interbank transfer, except that the sending and receiving banks are in different countries. So if the sending bank and the receiving bank have a reciprocal commercial banking agreement with each other, um, then the sending bank will this time send a swift message to the receiving bank to inform them of the transfer. Now the sending bank debits the sender's account and credits the receiving bank's commercial account. And the receiving bank then credits the destination account. So the swift message um, takes just minutes to process, not days or hours, but minutes. However, it can take between one to three days, sometimes even longer, for the money to show up in the destination account. Now the most inefficient, complex and expensive way to send money internationally using SWIFT is when the sending and receiving bank don't have reciprocal commercial banking relationships with each other. And in this case, that's when an intermediary bank is used. And that's when, some, that's when somebody at your bank says, well, we don't know what fees are going to be applied because of an intermediary bank. Now the sending bank then debits, in this case, the sending bank debits the sender's account and instructs the intermediary bank to debit its commercial account with the intermediary bank, while at the same time credit the receiving bank's commercial account. The receiving bank's commercial account then credits the receiver's account. Now the intermediary bank charges a fee for doing this, but the real costs and delays in using the SWIFT system occur when the person sends money from one country to a receiver's account in another country and the receiver's account is denominated in another currency. Now this is where the fun begins. Now the sender will, will typically be charged a transfer cost fee and that can be anywhere between $30 and $100 and a foreign exchange rate between the sending and, rec and receiving currencies. So the exchange rates offered are very expensive in this case as we'll see in a few minutes. Now if you live in Europe and you want to send euros to a bank inside any of the EU member states, 
then you can just use a SEPA transfer. And SEPA stands for Single Euro Payments Area. And it's an effective way to send euros uh, only across borders of the EU member states, plus uh, countries like Iceland, Monaco, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and San Marino. But SEPA works like a domestic interbank transfer. And banks that allow SEPA transfers either have commercial relationships directly with each other, or they share relationships via intermediary banks. So uh, for the user, the SEPA payments are low cost, they're either free or they're very low fees, and they normally complete the next business day. So that's quicker than using SWIFT. And spending money across borders using SWIFT, going back to the talking about SWIFT, is slow and expensive. Very expensive if you factor in foreign exchange fees. Now the banking system is using technology that's 45 years old, and a disruption was needed, and the disruption is what the banking system got. So let's now take a look at um, disruptive behavior in, in banking. What's, what's, what are the technologies that are shaking things up? Well, in the close quarter series, we talked about Ripple. Now, Ripple Labs is a private company backed by venture capitalists, banks, and corporations. And Ripple itself is made up of um, three components. The company, Ripple Labs Inc., the protocol, Ripple, and the currency of the Ripple protocol, XRP. Now, the, one of the useful things to start with is to ask what problem does this solve? So what problem is Ripple Labs Inc. attempting to solve with XRP? Well, the answer is SWIFT. Ripple's a disruptive technology and a possible replacement for the SWIFT system. And the Ripple protocol using XRP is designed for faster, almost instant interbank payments. Now, the SWIFT cooperative, though, isn't just going to sit there and let this new technology like Ripple take over. So SWIFT has responded to the threat and has launched an upgrade to its system called the Global Payments Innovation. Um, but it took, always remember, it took a threat to the status quo to be able to motivate this change. So Ripple is attempting to disrupt the interbank payment system, but other companies like fintech banks and currency exchange brokers, uh, they've been launched over the last few years, and they are there to disrupt the traditional banks themselves. So, for example, um, most banks advertise that they and make it known that they charge a low fee or even a zero rate free to send the money across borders say british pounds from your account to euros and your friends account but what they don't tell you is the spread they add to the buy and sell price of the currencies so there's no fixed fee but the exchange rates are quoted and they're widespread so for example spreads like euro to us dollar or british pound to euro now in euro us dollar the euro is called the base currency and the US dollar is called the quote currency. And if the exchange rate between the euro and the US dollar is say 1.14233, then this means it will take 1.14233 US dollars to buy one euro. Now, exchange rates move in minimum units called pips and they stand for percentage in point. And pip values in all currency pairs except ones involving the Japanese yen are measured to the fourth decimal point or 0.00001. Now, the yen actually is measured in two decimal points. Now, traditional banks, what they do is they widen, some might say outrageously slow, so the spread between the buy price and the sell price of the currency, and this incurs very high costs to the senders. So let's have a look at an example. Let's say you, uh, so someone wanted to send 100,000 British pounds to Australia as, say, for example, a down payment for a property. Now, at the current time of writing, 
the exchange rate between the mid price between the British pound and the Australian dollar is 1.7681. So it takes 1.7681 Australian to buy one British pound. Now the best British, British rate on offer, the bank rate from the big four in Britain is 1.7292. That's the best rate. Now, if you could sell British pounds and buy dollars at the spot price, that's the actual price of the exchange, that's a difference of 789 pips. And um, remember, a pip is the minimum unit of movement in foreign exchange markets. So the pip value is one ten thousandth, except for Japanese yen pairs. And that doesn't sound like very much, but 100,000 pounds at a spot rate of 1.7681 is $176,810. But the best bank rate, is $172,920, and that's a difference of 3,890. Now, the formula for pip value is one pip divided by the exchange rate times lot size. And the standard lot size of foreign exchange is, is 100,000. So that's 0 0.0001 divided by 1.7681 times 100,000 equals £5.56 per pip, or $10 per pip. And that 389 pips is where $3,890 come from. And so um, that's the difference between being able to operate at a spot price or being able to operate at a traditional bank rate. So that's a $3,890 difference on the 100,000. Now, anyone who's lived in Australia for the last 20 years will know how far 100,000 goes when it comes to house prices. So imagine instead transferring, say, half a million pounds. That would be a difference between trading at spot and trading on the bank spread of $19,450. Now, it's actually been possible for a number of years for a retail investor to be able to place bids and offers at or near the interbank spot rate through other brokers. Um, there are online brokers available to retail people like um, interactive brokers. You need a minimum ac account to do this, of course, but it's been possible to do. And you also have to get used to um, entering orders directly into an order book and being able to deal with something called a limit order. Now, the problem is if you make a mistake, that's just bad luck because there's no sort of, oh, can I unwind this? You're going to have to unwind that position yourself. You're going to have to reverse it yourself. So if you make what's called a fat finger trade and you make a mistake, you're going to have to trade your trade the other way around to get out of that position. And for most, the average person playing around with their life savings, um, playing, playing around on an order book with a bid and ask just isn't going to be comfortable. Now, as a retail investor, swapping currency at or near the spot rate wasn't possible. Um, and that is until now. And now dis fintech banks are making it possible without the risk of fat finger trading to disrupt traditional banks by providing cross-border services to retail customers. Now, new fintech banking platforms, in contrast to traditional banks, allow customers to exchange money from, from say, British pounds to euros um, at or near the interbank spot rate. And this saves their customers thousands of dollars or pounds um, of spreads used by traditional banks. Now, what fintech banks use is a, is a fixed fee to, to make money on this. So a bank, as they say, will lend you an umbrella, a traditional bank will, but they'll always want it back when it's raining. And thanks to the financial crisis, traditional banks don't enjoy uh, a good reputation. So most people um, don't send large amounts of money across borders. Um, and, you know, they really don't. And so the vast majority of people, when they're swapping currency, swap money for holidays or small purchases. But anyone who's emigrated to another country and had to make an exchange rate between the home currency and the new country's currency will understand just how big these traditional bank fees are. And because of the way um, traditional banks, because of the, the esteem that they're held in now, it's making it possible for people to look at fintech banks as an alternative. 
So how can they offer, how can fintech banks offer um, retail investors prices at or near the spot rate? Well, if you think of it like this, they operate like a middleman between you and the interbank system. The fintech bank will have segregated clients accounts in all the countries that they offer rates at. So let's say that you want to send euros to a friend in Germany and let's say that you live in the UK. So you're going to send British pounds to your fintech bank, uh, either with a bank transfer or a debit card. And the fintech bank then sends euros to your friend's account from their German bank account. So the money you send never actually crosses a border. And then the fintech bank just, just um, debits and credits the accounts internally. So remember, the commercial intermediary bank relationship we discussed earlier, that's a system that's used when you send an international money order through a traditional bank. So the fintech bank is the equivalent of a commercial intermediary bank to a traditional bank, except this time the customer is you. And uh, what that does is it cuts out all the fees, uh, or most of the fees, and those fees are, are in the foreign exchange rate in the bid and ask. So for the retail investor, moving money globally was up until now slow, inefficient and expensive. But thanks to disruptors like Ripple and maybe fintech banks, things are changing. Now, let's take it up a notch. In the Powerball article, we discussed volatility. Now, it's something the majority of us don't think about. Most people in the US or Europe don't really have to concern themselves with exchange rate fluctuations. Um, if someone's retiring to Arizona or Florida from Chicago, or the south of France from Helsinki, they don't have to think about or worry about foreign exchange risk. But if you're moving to another country, um, then you are going to have to deal with foreign exchange risk. So traditional banks move money across borders using the SWIFT system. And that was a system, remember, designed in 1974 to replace plain text messages sent over telex machines. And SWIFT is slow and it's expensive. Now, just as a caveat, yes, it is possible to lock in fixed exchange rates for a period of months or days, but eventually, if you move money across borders and it's sitting in your account, the exchange rate fluctuations will have a real impact, especially if your end game is to round trip your funds back into your base currency. So just to illustrate this, imagine if you decided to emigrate to Australia in 2001 and you swap your British pounds for Australian dollars at a rate of $2.98 to the pound. Now, at the time, the sentiment was the only way down for the Australian dollar. Nobody wanted it. And if you've been reading earlier articles and following us along, you might be guessing a foreshadowing of what's about to happen. Well, in Australia, Western Australia had a mining boom and it had begun by 2001, but its impact hadn't yet trickled down into everyday life. So let's say that you're, uh, it's 2001 and you're selling up in the UK and by a happy accident, you sold your house for £300,000 and you swapped it into Aussie dollars at a rate of 2.98 Aussie dollars to the pound. And this means for every pound you sell, you receive 2.98 Australian. So after arriving in Australia, that would give you from 300000 894000 Australian dollars to invest in a property. Now, over the next nine years, you find yourself the beneficiary of what's called the multiplier effect. And that's because between 2001 and 2010, the Australian dollar, a currency absolutely no one wanted in 2001, the only way was down, it strengthened. And it was fueled by the mining boom and the Chinese desire for Australian iron ore. And that did find its way into the economy and property prices boomed. So median house prices in a city like Perth, for example, rose 163% between 2001 and 2010. That's a compound growth rate of 11.35% a year. And over nine years, that means your 894,000 Australian dollars is now 2.3 million. 
But as property in Australia was going up, the currency was also going up against the British pounds, meaning you can buy back more British pounds. So swapping Australian dollars back to British pounds at a rate of 1.51 in late 2010 gives you 1.55 million pounds. So over nine years, your initial 300,000 into Australian dollars, then into another asset class, has enjoyed a compound growth rate of over 20%. Or put another way, you just made £11,574 per month every month over nine years. And this is what can happen if you're on the right side of currency fluctuations with a multiplier effect. But what, or, or any volatility effect. Now what if you're on the wrong side? But, so what has the ability to give also, and unfortunately, has the ability to take away? So why did we just use an example of the British pound to the Australian dollar? The reason is, is because foreign exchange is a good example of volatility and trend moving in your favor. And in the Powerball article series, in the video and podcast as well, we looked at the volatility of the euro against the US dollar. And if you look at it on its own, it looks pretty wild. Now, if you check out the Powerball article, you'll be able to see it. But it's nothing compared to Bitcoin. But if you take a look at the Powerball article and see what the Euro US dollar to the Bitcoin US dollar volatility is on the same scale, you'll be quite shocked. So here's a spoiler alert. Bitcoin is so volatile that when compared to the Euro and the US dollar on the same scale, the Euro to US dollar literally looks like a straight line. Now, fintech banks give you the ability to move your fiat currency around the system and give you the ability to quickly and efficiently change one currency to another. But with the rise of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, they still don't allow you to get access to the new economy of digital currencies very easily. Now, on the 10th of December 2018, the British Parliament will vote on the next step of the Brexit process. Now, the wrong answer could see the British pound plunge. So using a fintech bank, for example, you can now cheaply and efficiently swap British pounds for euros or any other major currency instantly at or near the, the actual exchange rate and pay a set low fee. Now let's take this up to another level. So with fintech banks, they're disrupting traditional banks and you can move your money around closer to the spot price and pay less. But what if you wanna move your money into a cryptocurrency asset? If you sweep your funds into a cryptocurrency account, what cryptocurrency are you gonna to use to hold your funds? And this is a problem. <clears throat> if you pick Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any other top-ranked altcoin, then you're going to be exposed to extreme levels of volatility compared to other assets, as we've seen. So what if you need to move fast? Even if, if, even if you've already set up your account, how are you going to fund it? Now, if you use a debit card or a credit card, then generally you're going to have to pay a very high fee uh, to, to convert your funds, and you'll be limited to how much you can move. And you won't be able to move that much without your bank raising an eyebrow. So what about a bank transfer? Well, yes, you could use lower fees to do a bank transfer, but the bank transfer is going to take a few days through the SWIFT system and to clear into the cryptocurrency account. Now, that means that you could be waiting three to five days for your funds to be available. So remember the British pound to Australian dollar uh, earlier? What if you wanted to take advantage of a, a situation in real time back in 2001? Now, in reality, you would have had to have your, to get that 2.98 rate, you would have had to, your account funded, your cash ready, and you needed to be ready to pull the trigger, absolutely ready. So in the same way today, it's possible to fund a cryptocurrency account and move the funds into a stable coin like Tether. But Tether has some yellow flags and we discussed those in the Powerball article. 
One of the big issues with Tether is the proof of its collateralization. Tether is supposed to be backed one-to-one -one with US dollars, with a circula circulating supply of about 1.8 billion, and that's recorded by CoinMarketCap, so there should be a bank account somewhere with $1.8 billion in it. But the problem is, no audit has proved that's true. So if you sweep uh, your cryptocurrency funds into Tether, then you're, in theory, exposed to complete failure if you're unlucky enough to be holding Tether at the same time that news breaks out, if it ever does, that Tether's not actually backed by the US dollars it, claim, it claims to be. So what if there was a way, though, that you could move your fiat currency into a cryptocurrency exchange and have your account ready to go, transferring from US dollars, euros or yen into a stable coin equivalent, a stable coin that is 100% verified, audited and backed uh, with the underlying currency that it represents. What if there was a way to set up your cryptocurrency account so it's ready to trade, safe in the knowledge that your funds are protected from cryptocurrency volatility, whilst at the same time having the protection of an asset that is verifiably uh, holding that the same amount of underlying fiat currency safely in a vault. Well, there actually is. Now, it's called Tidecoin. Now, Tidecoin is a price-stable cryptocurrency that is backed one-to-one -one with fiat currency. Now, Tidecoin is available in euros, US dollars, and Japanese yen, and each denomination is 100% collateralized by the corresponding currency it represents. That means that for every Tide, one Tide, there is one euro or one dollar or one yen. So Tidecoin's fiat currency holdings are regularly audited too. So unlike Tether, uh, its bank account holdings are published on a daily basis. Then that will give you the security of knowing that your cryptocurrency investments are protected from extreme levels of volatility in the cryptocurrency marketplace. So where do you get hold of Tidecoin? Well, it's available on B-Exchange. And that's a, uh, think of it as a bridge between the cryptocurrency market and banks, both traditional and fintech. Now, once you've opened your account, subject to know your customer and anti-money laundering screening, you'll be able to sweep your fiat currencies into a fully collateralized fiat currency equivalent of euros, US dollars, or Japanese yen. And as we've talked about, this protects you from cryptocurrency volatility while keeping your cryptocurrency account locked, loaded, and ready for action. So this week, we've talked about um, how traditional banks have monopolized the banking system uh, with their SWIFT, literally monopolized it with their SWIFT system and how it's recently been disrupted. We talked about the alternatives. Within Europe, you can use a faster and cheaper system called SEPA. We've talked about the scenarios about how you move money around. And then we've moved it into um, uh, finding where the hidden fees are. And we've seen the, the sneaky ways traditional banks will tell you that the amount of currency that you can swap is free of a fee, which means they're saving you $30, but they're charging you a massive spread between the buy price and the sell price of the currencies, sometimes leaving you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars out of pocket. So fintech banks have come along and disrupted that, and they allow retail investors, without having to go into order books, to directly swap currency for currency at or near the, the spot price for, for a low fixed fee. And then we said, well, that's great, but how if you want to um, diversify some of your assets into cryptocurrencies, if you pull some of your fiat currency into the cryptocurrency world, we talked about volatility and how you can protect yourself from it. And so one of the, the, one of the ways that you can do that is with a stable coin. The problem with the, um, currently with the, the most used stable coin, which is Tether, is that it's not been audited and nobody knows for sure whether it is backed one-to-one -one with a currency. So 
If you're holding a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or like Ethereum, as we've seen, the volatility is so wild that um, that can have a real effect on your bottom line, especially if you're on the wrong side of a down move. Uh, obviously, 2018 has been a, a, real, a real bad year for cryptocurrency values. So we've then moved into an alternative, and an alternative is a stable coin. Uh, this coin is called Tidecoin, and it is, unlike Tether, 100% audited and verified and available in three different currencies. So that's it for this week. This is John Jameson for altcoinsidekick.com and I'll see you next time. Hey, this is John Jameson. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you've got a lot out of it. Don't forget to rate us on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Your review will help spread the word and allow us to create more thought-provoking content for you, covering all things crypto, not just the individual coins and tokens, but the societal trends and motivations behind the rollout of blockchain technology. The internet is being re-engineered and not one in 100,000 realizes it's happening. Welcome to the revolution.